The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of NOCO Media Limited, its employees, sponsors, or affiliates. Diverse voices. Unique sound. Not the same old thing. Different. Different. This is NOCO FM. of when you think of the apocalypse? Death? Destruction? The end of times? What if the actual meaning of the apocalypse was a revealing of a new world and a new way of thinking? What if this new world was one where people lived together in peace and harmony, where the common good of everyone was valued? This might sound like the stuff fairy tales are made of, but in my interview with visionary, author, humorist, and political and cultural commentator Steve Behrman, he will unveil the realities of this emerging new paradigm and hope for ourselves and our planet. Welcome to The Spark. I am your host, Stephanie James. So I'm here today with Steve Behrman. Thank you so much, Steve, for joining us on The Spark. Well, thank you so much for sparking this conversation. I'm thrilled to have you here. So I have to tell you, so the, the serendipity that, that I think I've shared with you before that led to this meeting today was I actually, I went to a Marianne Williamson event, Powerful Beyond Measure. And from there at her workshop, I sat beside this gentleman and he said, you have got to read this book called Spontaneous Evolution. And I said, okay, okay. Well, a week later, he sends me an email. You've got to read this book. And I said, I will. Well, so then, um, as you know, I, I had Jacob Lieberman on the show and then went to Maui and visited with Jacob. And then when I came home, I had said, uh, Jacob, who, who should I have as my next guest? Who would you recommend? Well, before I got the reply, I finally said, I am downloading that darn book. I'm going to get that spontaneous <laughs> evolution. <laughs> and I've listened to about 16 minutes of it. And I go back online and I see he said, Steve Behrman. Mm. <laughs> and I just started crying. I was like, oh my gosh, of course. And then the serendipity that I, I sent you that email and, and invited you to be on the show. And you said, coincidences abound. <laughs> I am going to be in Fort Collins. So this is such a cool opportunity to be able to actually sit across from you. It is wonderful. It's great to actually do these face-to-face. -face. It's so much more fun. And uh, you know, people on, who are listening can't exactly see it. Unless, of course, they, they're, they're psychic. They could definitely see it. But I'm happy to be here. So the book we're going to be discussing today is Spontaneous Evolution that you co-wrote with Bruce Lipton. Uh, but before we discuss the book, tell me a little bit about your own personal journey, Steve. Well, let's see. Um, prior to doing this book with Bruce Lipton, my, my original background is political science. Although I never actually got to dissect a politician. Darn uh, it. I never got quite that far. And I spent my deformative years in, in New York and uh, Brooklyn and uh, had a career as uh, I started an alternative high school in Washington, D.C., uh, taught at Wayne State University. And uh, I thought I was being a college professor in, uh, in social studies and history and so on. But a funny thing happened. And I'm sure that when you talk with a lot of your guests, you find that there are certain things that happen in their lives that are totally surprising and totally unpredictable that actually changes the course of their lives. So I thought I was being a professor at Wayne State. I was good at it. I was teaching auto workers who I loved. But a funny thing happened. I got laid off from my job, and the only job I could get was doing tree work for the city of Ann Arbor, Michigan, taking down trees that had Dutch elm disease. And while I'm at this, what seems like a very dead-end job, like why am I doing this? I've had a book on education published by Simon & Schuster. I've taught at the college level, and here I am putting on a hard hat and a jumpsuit every day and chipping brush, you know. What's wrong with this picture? One day, they put a new guy with me, Larry Tulsa, and Larry turned out to be a brilliant psychologist disguised as a truck driver. He had studied neurolinguistic programming before anybody knew what it was, and as he came to work in this workplace, he realized that what was needed was disruption. And so the most enjoyable and positive way to disrupt anything is through humor. 
And so he said, you're a writer. And he enrolled me in writing this uh, uh, biweekly uh, newspaper for the guys at the shop, totally anonymous, totally humorous. We changed the workplace with this because we added novelty to a place that was very muggly and very predictable. We told the truth through humor, and I really started understanding the power that humor has to disrupt our ordinary ways of thinking. And so I went on to uh, create a career uh, as Swami Beyond Ananda, the cosmic comic, and I've been traveling around for the past 32 years. And in, 20, in 2005, right after Bruce Lipton had written um, his breakthrough book, uh, The Biology of Belief, we got to spend a weekend with Bruce and his wife, Margaret, and we became friends. We just laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed and had such a good time. And as Bruce and I began this conversation, we began a conversation about what would happen if we took the, um, what, the material from Biology of Belief that talks about how our uh, our beliefs impact our biology and the out, outpicturing of our lives. What would happen if we did that with our societal, with our collective beliefs? And that's what spontaneous evolution was about. It, uh, it allowed me to take the more quote-unquote serious parts of my life and, and work and put them together. So Bruce provided the biology, uh, master as he is of that, uh, a man, you know, least half a century ahead of his time, really originated what is now being popularized as the science of epigenetics. Bruce was there at the very beginning. Um, and then I did the, the sociology, the psychology, the spirituality, the economics, the politics. I read 40 books to uh, write my half of spontaneous evolution. And it was an amazing journey, many, many miracles uh, and Changes took place in the process, and we were fortunate enough to uh, have Hay House pick it up, and it's now in, I think it's 26 languages. Wow. It's really unusual to see Swami Beyond Ananda's quotes because we have these comedy quotes at the head of each chapter. It's really interesting to see it in Hungarian or Korean. <laughs> oh, I'm wondering, how did they translate? <laughs> I bet. Well, so I listened to it on Audible. So I've listened to it twice, and I'm in my third listening. They don't do the quotes on Audible. Well, of course not. Doggone it. No, no, no. But, but it's really a wonderful format because it's, it's like you're having a conversation. You and Steve, I mean, you and Bruce are just having this wonderful interaction. You know, and what's funny about that is that we actually did that conversation for Sounds True a year before the book was published. So the audio came out prior, and it's not like we're reading the book, we're really in conversation and uh, really enjoying the pieces of the book and the interactivity. Well, it's interesting, as I um, would tell people about this book, for a long time, I just kept calling it the evolution of belief. Uh -huh. So I had so many people trying to look up evolution of belief, but but really, essentially, that is what the book is about. Um, and... So it really captivated me with my first real understanding of how our belief systems have evolved. And you wrote about the four basal paradigms. Can you talk about those? Yeah, um, yeah the basal paradigms, and this is sort of the, the history of how, um, how, how thought and belief, collective belief develop. And you know, it begins with, with animism, and animism uh, is basically um, indigenous spirituality. There's no difference between oneself and one's environment. We're all, we're, I'm part of this system, there's all this oneness, and there's tremendous connectivity in that. And, and again, if we, if we look at evolution, though, evolution always wants to learn more. Evolution always becomes more complex and creates uh, new systems to encompass that complexity. So from animism, we went to polytheism. No, that's not the worship of parrots. No, it's not that. <laughs> polytheism is having many gods. And if you think about the Greeks and the, uh, and the Scandinavians and so on, there was this panoply of gods. Whereas uh, you know, people began to recognize that there were certain forces of nature, the forces of the wind, the forces of, of things growing from the ground and all of these things. And they began to project those, and they began to call them gods. And they began to recognize that there were powers out there that were bigger than we are, uh, that were somewhat mysterious. And so we had uh, 
this panoply of gods that lived on Mount Olympus and interacted with human beings. Um, through the Judeo-Christian system, the Abrahamic religions, we came the third um, basal paradigm, which is monotheism. And that's the idea that there's one God, there's one creator, which is actually a very, um, not that different from the Native American spirituality that we're all one with the same one. But because of the culture and because uh, the goddess, the, the feminine had been uh, discounted uh, as the world became, uh, as we had more warlike tribes taking over the, these peaceful indigenous people, you really had to had to either dominate or be dominated. And so uh, this dominator, this was a dominator religion. It was a top-down system. Uh, there's an angry God out there, and uh, you better not tick him off. Otherwise, you're going to roast in hell for, the, for eternity, which is a long time. And, uh, and so uh, this was the, the dominant paradigm uh, for a long time until uh, the Enlightenment. And this was like the, the uh, idea of science and, and a new paradigm called scientific materialism came forth where, through Newton and through uh, Sir Francis Bacon, etc., etc., where we began to recognize that the material world was measurable and impactable. And we have Newton, Newton's laws of equal and opposite forces, of force of gravity, and all of these very, um, it, for those times, very enlightened ideas. What happened uh, during that period of time, let's say from the 1500s to the 1800s, is that uh, essentially there was a split that religion got custody of our spiritual lives and science got custody of our material lives. And we have been living in this, um, this half-baked, um, incomplete, um, dueling dualities for, uh, for several hundred years. And so now, because neither of these belief systems can really encompass what we truly know, and in our book, the second part of the book is called The Four Myth Perceptions of the Apocalypse, and we talk about how science has actually disproven four of the key dogmas of scientific materialism, but we don't know it. But we're still living in a Newtonian world of equal and opposite forces. We have Newtonian economics. We have Newtonian politics. When what we now know through quantum uh, uh, quantum theory, through Einstein's work, uh, is that the field is the sole governing agency over the particle. So as an example, if you have a if you pour iron filings on a piece of paper, they fall in a random pattern. You put a magnet underneath that, and all of a sudden the iron filings arrange themselves in this very organized pattern. And if you don't know about magnetism, you go, wow, those are some very, very intelligent iron filings. So um, we are now seeing that there are such things as fields, even though we don't exactly know how to uh, how to measure all of these fields. So we're now at the cusp of a new uh, uh, basal paradigm belief because the old one, um, the old ones that we're in right now haven't, um, will not be able to take us through this next passage. I am your hero, Corbin David Albaugh, and you can catch me on Corbin vs. the World as I bring you the greatest tunes of yesterday, today, and tomorrow while saving the world for you and everyone you know every Friday at 6 o'clock Mountain Time on NOCO FM. Programming on NOCO FM is supported by its listeners and by Audible.com. With over 180,000 titles to choose from, Audible.com allows you to listen to an immense library of books for every taste on your iPhone, Android, Kindle, tablet, or computer. Audible.com has a special offer for listeners which includes a free audiobook of your choice and a 30-day free trial. Learn more and get your free audiobook now at noco.fm audible. Here's something you might not know. 
NOCO FM is also a podcast network producing one-of-a-kind programming like the show you're enjoying right now. We have talk shows, original comedy, music shows curated by real people, and a lot more. So if you like what you're hearing, make NOCO FM a part of your day and tell your friends. Remember, that's www.noco.fm. So let's talk a little bit to help the audience understand a little more fully. In each one of those basal paradigms, you you talked about these three essential questions that kind of helps define them. I want to kind of flesh this out just a little bit more before we move on. Okay, good. I haven't studied my book in a long time, so it's... So, so, well, and so the first question, if we start with just animism, is how did we get here? Why are we here? And now that we're here... How do we make the best of it? Yeah, and so how, wh- why are we here? I mean, it's basically, we're here. We, we're here because we're here. We're here as a as part of this uh, as part of this garden and so on. And um, basically, it was living in harmony with the garden. That was that was how the um, the native peoples did that. And I just had a wonderful conversation with uh, uh, a guy named Steve Newcomb. And Steve Newcomb, I don't know if you know him, but he. Uh, is a Native American uh, researcher uh, and an attorney. And he has uh, studied what's called the doctrine of uh, discovery, you know, and the idea that uh, in the 1400s, um, the Pope sent out, the, put out this papal bull that essentially said, you conquistadors, if you land on the shores of any, any foreign lands, um, those people are not Christians, they're heathens, you can take everything. You can convert them if you want, but basically they're not people, and so you have dominion over these people. And so as I've listened to Stephen speak, he said, you know, prior to that, of course the tribes had their squabbles and so on, but basically there was no such thing as domination. Mm -hmm. There was no domination, that there was a basic harmony and understanding living with these cycles of nature. So that first group, the animists, they were in harmony with the with the cycles of nature, when we move on to the um, um, polytheistic. the polytheistic people, um, you know their idea was that these um, these forces of nature were um, we interacted with them like um, like they were beings in a certain regard they were deities sub deities, and the idea was to get on the right side of these deities that that was what it is and. Um, you know that that's really how to get along in this world. The um, you know when monotheism came along, there was a, quite a radical idea that there's just this one this one God as opposed to the multiplicity of gods. And because of how uh, because of the culture at that time and what they couldn't compass, it was basically you better be on God's good side. You better watch out. You better not cry because. That guy is watching. It's the big, the big guy in the sky. And uh, not only did he not live on Mount Olympus, which was somewhat reachable from here, but was totally off planet. So we had a totally off planet deity. And one of the implications of that, and one of the conclusions that was made, is that um, you know we, as uh, as children of God, have been given dominion over this physical earth. And dominion is not the same thing, as I've learned with my conversation with Stephen Newcomb, dominion is not the same thing as uh, being a steward for this. Mm-hmm. Dominion is not the same thing as being in harmony and managing. Dominion means domination. So we had the beginnings of um, Western so-called civilization, which had to do with um, using up everything and then moving somewhere else. Um, and so that was that was how that that very patriarchal system happened. When we got to the scientific materialism, um, th- there was a be- because of wanting to um, eliminate all of this magical thinking that was part of the uh, the monotheism. Um, we got here by random chance. We got here by random chance. And in a certain regard, um, and then whatever we want to do individually, that's okay. So it's really interesting that um, um, 
social we we now have uh, in in our in our system we have so many contradictions because you know we have uh, religious fundamentalists who believe in social darwinism who believe in um survival of the fittest so what's happened is that we humans have cherry picked these beliefs to uh basically fit how how we um where we are in our lives and how we see the rest of the world and what we don't see is that these belief systems are really veils that we look through and so this is an apocalyptic time the lifting of the veils and so the veils are being lifted on all of these belief systems and the things that used to be invisible to us like dominate or be dominated well that's just how things are so now we're at the point where we're ready for something new because this random evolution's been disproved. Evolution is an intentional process. Well, and I think that's one of the important things you talked about is that the uh, the word apocalypse actually does mean that, the lifting of the veils. And I, I find that interesting because that's also one of the quests, if you will, in Sufism. They believe that as you come into your greater self, into your heart self, you're lifting the veils. You know, it's interesting about that. And the veils are being lifted, as we say, from the awful truths. You know, all the toxic perpetrations are coming up to be metabolized. We call that residue All the residue is coming up to be metabolized. And at the same time, all of these teachings, the Sufi teachings, the teachings, uh, the Vedic teachings, the teachings of indigenous people, of Celtic spirituality, on and on and on, of Chinese medicine, all of these have been liberated from protective custody because these are the very internal tools that we're gonna to need to take us through this passage to a new uh, basal paradigm that we call uh, the holistic paradigm, wholeness. I, I love that and I wanna definitely talk more about that. I think one of the important backstories too that I love that I don't think a lot of people know is about Darwin. Right, you know, it's interesting, uh, you know, Bruce uh, really studied this very carefully, and, he, and um, people have compared him to Lamarck. Because if you want to go back, the uh, one of the first students of of evolution was uh, Lamarck, who was um, who came to um, popularity at the same time as the French Revolution. And his idea was he understood that evo that that we evolved, you know, because in in those days, that was when they first began to look at. Uh, at archaeology and geology and go, wow, these rocks are old. These rocks are old and we're finding layers inside these rocks of these critters that, that lived obviously a long, long time ago. And so Lamarck's theory of evolution is that there's an intentional aspect of evolution. An intentional aspect meaning that um, in order to survive, and it's been exaggerated and made fun of, well, you know, giraffes necks are long because over time they stretch to reach the food up there. Um, and so Lamarck came to popularity around the same time as the French Revolution. However, when the counter-revolution took place, his ideas fell out of favor. And um, so young Charles Darwin, um, first he studied for the ministry, which was something that people did in those days. He studied for the ministry. He wasn't cut out for it. And so he ended up on a voyage, on a voyage around the world, um, studying various life forms and in different places. It was, uh, it was quite an amazing adventure that he had. And while he began studying that, he began to recognize that there was a, a process by which these organisms developed. And he began to note what that process was. And so for many years, he put together this he started putting together this theory, but didn't publish it. Um, meanwhile, meanwhile, back in the jungle, um, there was uh, a, a researcher named Alfred Russell Wallace. And unlike uh, Darwin, Wallace was a commoner. And uh, you know, so he didn't have as much uh, credibility or credentials or anything, but he ended up coming up with a theory that uh, very much was like the one that Darwin was working on. And so what happened was because of the um, social status that Darwin had and the social status that Wallace didn't have, um, they entered into a partnership. 
uh, where, where Darwin offered to publish this and made Wallace his second author. And so we never hear about the Alfred Wallace theory of evolution. We hear about Darwin's theory. And so that, that's what happened when they presented it to the British Royal Academy. Um, obviously, Alfred Russell Wallace was not qualified, and it was Darwin that presented it. The fact that Wallace came up with this theory really, really accelerated the process for Darwin to get this thing out. Well, and, and the essential piece, too, is the twist then that Darwin put to this theory. That's right. That's right. Now, if you really, you know, we've talked about survival of the fittest, survival of the fittest, survival of the fittest. Well, in looking at where Darwin was in terms of his social status and how those people believed, again, didn't realize it was a belief. You know, the thing about beliefs is you don't realize it's a belief. You think it's reality. So in Darwin's reality, you know, the upper classes ruled and they were privileged and so on. And so if you really look at the law of the jungle, the law of the jungle is the non-survival of the non-fittest. In other words, the lion is not looking to get the fastest gazelle so he can mount him in his den, right? The lion is looking to get the lowest, you know, the low-hanging gazelle. So the weakest. Yeah, yeah, the weakest one. And so the real, the real uh, if you want to use the law of the jungle, it's the non-survival of the non-fittest. Now that is a whole more, a whole bunch more economically and politically democratic. It means a lot more people are going to survive. But the survival of the fittest, that idea, created a sense of competition that was directly in conflict with the original Greek meaning of the word competition. In the original Greek meaning, competition meant to strive together. So when we imagine those Greek athletes competing in the Olympics, they are using one another as their pace car, basically. They're all striving together, not looking to beat this guy or beat that guy. But because of this dominator meme that was so powerful and so important and so invisible, um, it was natural, and I'm using quote marks here, mm -hmm. for Darwin to adapt the theory so that it more suited social Darwinism, which says essentially a few people do very well and everybody else pretty much doesn't. Such an important distinction. And, and how different the world would be if we actually would have gone with Wallace's first take. Yeah. There are many, many turning points in, in the history of the world like that where I'm sure there's parallel universes where we did it right. <laughs> Some of it we blew ourselves up a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, let's move on. I want to talk about uh, The Matrix. Mm. Um, because one of the things that struck me as you were talking about that, and, and I had I had known a bit about the Matrix having a deeper meaning. Yeah. But when uh, definitely when I originally saw the movie The Matrix, I just thought it was pure entertainment. Um, so can you talk about the the much deeper meaning that the movie The Matrix held, and then its implications with us? Well, you know, I want to go back to a quote that we used from from uh, Einstein. And Einstein says that the field is the sole governing agency over the particle, as I said earlier. So what that means is that most of our human endeavor is looking to move the particles around. But very few people really look at what is it that actually creates this so-called reality that we're in. What is the field that creates the field of beliefs, that create the attitudes, that create the institutions, that create the behaviors. And so the idea of the matrix is this um, invisible systemic way of thinking and seeing that is essentially just a game. You know, when Bruce and I had these conversations, and some of it's in the book and some isn't, but, you know, um, we, we talked about reincarnation, for example. You know, Bruce is a scientist, you know, so what does a scientist say about it? He says, well, remember when we were kids, we'd be at the beach and we had these transistor radios. And at some point we'd be listening to, you know, WABC or whatever we were listening to and the battery would die. Okay. And you can't hear it anymore. The question is, is the radio station still broadcasting that signal? The answer is yes. You put new batteries in reincarnation. So Bruce has this idea 
uh, and, and I kind of like this idea. We just talked about it a few weeks ago. That um, essentially we're we're being operated by remote. <laughs> that we are we're we're physical bodies here, um, and yet there is a system that is um, where where things are all connected and where we are receiving signals. We're receiving signals. So essentially, who we are is a signal. Does that make sense? So related to the movie The Matrix, as you guys were using that as a model, because people took blue pills and then people took red pills. It signified certain things. Oh, okay. Yes, exactly. Now, now I remember what you're saying. Um, the idea of the uh, of the blue pill um, is going along with whatever it is. Now, of course, it doesn't relate to red and blue right now, but in the movie it did. And the red pill is I want to know what this is all about. I want to get to the bottom of things. And one of the we're in this uh, condition right now, where realities are falling apart as the, as the veils are being lifted. We're seeing pieces of the machinery that we're not supposed to see. You know, we're not supposed to see. Uh, you know, and, and again, if you go, people who read deeply in spontaneous evolution, the politics of it, and looking at not so much the red blue politics of now, but the meta politics. What's the bigger story? And if we look at the bigger story of this country, USA, since World War II, we, the people of this country, have entered into a don't ask, don't tell policy with our government. We promise not to ask them what they're doing, and they promise not to tell us. And why that's important is that um, when we look at the, the political dysfunction that we're seeing in every, in every aspect, it's because we are, we've suffered the post-traumatic stress disorder of being consistently misled, lied to, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And as pieces of these of these puzzles, that's we're able to, you know, more and more people are taking the red pill and wanting to see below the surface. At the same time, there isn't yet the comprehensive understanding to be able to metabolize these things. So it's very easy to uh, get, put yourself in the victim and villain game. You know, I'm a victim, they're the villain, they're the bad guys. And when you really start looking at, um, at the entire picture, and this goes back to you know, uh, the, the evolution of, of our spirituality, back to animism. Evolution is a process, and every step of that process has been necessary because another word for evolution is learning. So evolution is the universe learning about itself. So in order for us to learn about separation, we have to experience separation. We have to create it. In order for us to uh, experience what love is really like, we have to create the contrast so that we know what love is not like. And so we are at this point right now, which is really, I, I think, a point of um, an existential crisis for our species, like do we want to continue to exist anymore? Uh, that 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 crisis, and so what's happening is that there are pieces of the matrix that have been exposed, um, and not enough of it. So we have people uh, who believe that uh, they've 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 looked into the heart of darkness. They've seen glimpses into it. They've seen how our government has lied to us in very provable ways, and then they extrapolate that. And imagine that uh, you know Donald Trump is going to save us from the deep state. Uh, yeah, and so what's going to save us from the deep state is a deeper state, which is what we cultivate together and the kind of information that you're generating through your program. So what I'm hearing is this thing of the universe exists in these polarities, and that we have to go through some darkness before we get to the light. Yeah. Um, Otherwise, this, otherwise it would be, there once was a little girl and she lived happily ever after. There's no story in between there. So the story is the journey, the hero's journey or the heroine's journey. And now where we are as a species because our collective impact has been so huge is that we are now in that passage of the hero's journey for our entire spirit, uh, species. So reality TV, reality that's the greatest show on earth. <laughs> Indeed. And, and I, I loved one of the things you, you all touched on, on the in the book as well, which is if we focus on what's negative now, 
if we focus on what's negative, whether it's in our political system, whether it's, you know, what's wrong in health, what we're doing then is fostering the disease. Exactly. And this is why the whole, uh, we have three sections of the book. The first is uh, we jokingly taken from my old friends at the Fire Science Theater, everything you know is wrong. And we recognize that how we've, we've misinterpreted things. Second section is the four myth perceptions, which is disproving science being used to disprove certain dogmas of science. The third section is called uh, regrowing the garden, changing the guard and regrowing the garden. It's letting go of the guard that's guarded our hearts from one another. We talk about the one suggestion that we're all in this together, uh, the one commandment, the golden rule. And then we talk about what would happen uh, with, the, with economics. We call it the healthy, wealthy commonwealth. Politics, healing the body politic. And finally, a whole new story, which is, again, the story is what creates our reality. How we weave our reality is what we tell ourselves reality is about. Um, and so in these times, we're, in a, we're at a point where the old is falling away and it's tattered and frayed and to use another metaphor that Bruce likes, uh, the caterpillar is falling apart and the butterfly imaginal cells are coming together. And so much of what we hear in the news is basically caterpillar debris falling. Hmm. Okay, So when you focus on that, you essentially make it more difficult to extract yourself and from that and put yourself in the new story. So we prescribe a three-step program, which mathematically works four times faster than 12-step. And the three steps are evolutionary awareness, that is becoming aware of, uh, of our history and where we might be heading if we design it right, as recognizing that we're all cells in the same body called humanity. Second is evolutionary intention. Intention is really, really important. Um, evolution is intentional. Bruce and I have been recently studying the work of um, Arthur Young, uh, who uh, was a philosopher of science. Uh, won't go into the long story about Arthur Young, but his basic belief is that life is purposeful. And so when you start, anytime there is a movement from here to here, energy always, always involves movement. Anytime a movement occurs from here to here, that is a sign that purpose is afoot. So what's very exciting right now is we get to imagine what our purpose as a species is. What are we here to do? What are we here as a country, for example? What is our what is our national mission statement? You know, people want to be successful in business. They have a mission statement. Individuals do that. Well, what if we had had a species mission statement? What would our mission statement be? If we were, and Bruce and I suggest that we might have this in this new holistic paradigm, our purpose would be to live and thrive in harmony with the natural world and fulfill our individual uh, creativity and destiny, you know? And that's what we've dreamed about for so many millennia. That's what our spiritual teachers have been telling us. And, um, you know, right now, it's time for human beings to step up to this um, conscious evolution, which is the third piece, and that's evolutionary action. So if we really are cells in the same body, if we really are all connected, and if that really is what the universe is about right now, how do we live our lives? What do we do every day? What is our right livelihood? What is our work of heart? Because in, in the quantum field, that's what it's talking about. We are all interconnected. We're all absolutely uh, essential fibers in the fabric of life. Bruce uses a wonderful analogy. He talks about the, uh, the spectrum. Every, you know, when you have the full spectrum of all the colors, it, you know, it, uh, and put through the prism, it, it, uh, it, it, it's white. If any one of those tiny, minuscule slivers of color, uh, of, of uh, vibration is missing, then there's no white then it's incomplete. So think of, the, think of the individuals in this life that are most vexing to you. They're absolutely necessary, absolutely necessary as part of this full spectrum of, of life. Um, 
And then also uh, the most mind-blowing chapter in, in the book for me, because um, it really involved delving into quantum physics, is a chapter called The One Suggestion. And in that chapter, uh, there are some extraordinary examples of how um, what we think of as constants like time and space um, cease to exist in a bigger in a bigger context. Here's an example. Um, uh, there is such a thing as random number generators. And random number generators, they're computers that just generate numbers at random. However, at certain times, these numbers become more coherent. They're, there are coherent patterns to numbers, you know, like heads comes up a lot more than tails or something like that. The times that that happens, it's when a um, many, 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 many people on the planet are concentrating on the same thing. So when it's the Super Bowl, that's what happens, right? Um, it happened uh, at Princess Diana's funeral, and it happened uh, at the 9-11 Twin Towers attack, okay? Now, I want you to think about this. At about three hours before the attack took place, the numbers began getting more ran more coherent. So if you can imagine time uh, as a pebble dropping in a pool of water and ripples going out in every direction, including the past. So everything you know is wrong. You know, <laughs> the way that we perceive the world, the way that we've learned to perceive the world in terms of linear time, it's an incomplete, it's an incomplete perception. And so what we're finding now is that uh, there's another new book uh, by Paul Levy being been written about uh, quantum. He'd be a good a good guess for you, a Jungian psychologist studying quantum physics. And what he's saying in this book about quantum physics is that the quantum physicists are freaked out by what they're discovering. They can't deal with it. Their minds, their linear minds, can't deal with the idea that a particle can be in two places at once that um, we can communicate outside the, um, the boundaries of time. So we're just at the very, 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 very beginning of understanding these things. And as we do, these linear ways of relating, like warfare, you know, which is autoimmune dysfunction for a body politic, they become obsolete, and the new word is obsolethal. Well, and I think a good introduction to quantum physics and some of these things is the movie, the documentary, What the Bleep Do We Know? Oh, yes, know? of course. Yes, exactly. Because it, it weaves in, you know, it's a documentary and it weaves in a movie that really plays out these scenarios and dualism and all these different things so that it's, it's for, for, you know, the typical lay person, yeah. uh, they get a more generalized understanding of, of what it's all about. Yes, exactly. So, so that might be a place that I would recommend people to start. But I, I want to talk to you about you know this this new paradigm, emerging paradigm of holism. It, it's so exciting when I hear you talk about it. When I was listening to the book, I would I would literally I was felt like I was coming out of my skin with yeah, excitement. Going, Where is it? Where is it? Which well, ten years? <laughs> well, although I do feel like you know I've, I've experienced that. Yeah. I, I have experienced. I resonated with so much of what what you were talking about, what you're speaking of. Um, with the interconnectedness, with understanding how time folds in itself. How do we, though, how do people access, as you're talking about, the field? How do people start, one of the things you guys talked about is impacting mm -hmm. the field. Yeah. How, how do we start to do that? Well, first of all, it's really important to recognize that the institutions, the dominant institutions of society, you know, we've, we're talking about uh, scientific materialism. We're talking about... Um, this um, in his book, um, the Paul Ray's book, the cultural creatives, he talks about three worldviews that are all in play right now. And the traditional worldview, which can be, you know, in some ways it's the indigenous people, but it's also um, traditional religion, uh, particularly fundamentalist religion, um, looking at, you know, this is the way it's been and this is the way it's going to be. And the earth is 6,000 years old and that's all. The dominant, that, that's about 25%, maybe 20%. The dominant meme is called, um, uh, Paul Ray calls it um, um, modernism. And modernism has no room for the metaphysical. And that's the dominant paradigm. 
If this were 25 years ago, Bruce Lipton would be interviewed on National Public Radio. He can't get arrested by National Public Radio because they don't buy it. They could not handle Bruce Lipton. They are still stuck in the only the material world is real paradigm. The world has moved on. So one of the reasons why we're in such political flux is that there are people out there who, uh, who are, let's, let's say they're, they're, some of them are progressive and some are conservative. Um, but many of the people involved in the alternative health movement, and so we are, uh, there are people who are able to see um, the emperor's bare buttocks and, and, and the cracks, in the, <laughs> so to speak, in the curtain and in the veil, and they're recognizing that the religion of scientific materialism um, no longer works, and there's something new coming. But that the thing that's blocking that new thing from coming is the unwillingness for um, mainstream thinking to be able to encompass the metaphysical. Um, you see a little bit of it with Deepak. You know, Deepak Chopra has made some inroads. Oprah Winfrey, Chopra and Oprah, what a combo. That's allowed some of that in. And we don't have this yet as a predominant way of seeing the world. True, many kids who are coming up nowadays already have that part. You know, you call them indigo children or whatever. They already have that piece. So one of the, so there's been a number of reasons why this new paradigm hasn't just burst forward like a flower. Because it takes time. And evolutionary time isn't like our time. Um, and the institutions that have a lot at stake at, in the status quo are still dominant. You know, we know we shouldn't be using fossil fuels, but we're still being ruled by fossilized fuels fueled by fossil fuels. It's still happening. They have momentum, whether you want to call it momentum or inertia. So the new, so the old ideas have momentum and inertia. Meanwhile, these new ideas are burgeoning. And they haven't yet made it, even though we, the people who are bringing these new ideas perhaps are maybe now about one-third of our adult population. Because the institutions have been unwilling to change. And I'll tell you a quick story. This is a Bruce Lipton story. It's 1985, and he's uh, at, teaching at the medical school, University of Wisconsin, and doing a lot of experimentation with cells and so on. Bruce discovers that unlike what we've learned in biology class, the nucleus is not the brain of the cell. The nucleus is the reproductive material, it's the gonads. The, the functions of the brain are carried out by the um, cell membrane surrounding the cell. If you take a, a nucleus out of the cell, the cell continues to live. If you take the brain out of you and me, we don't continue to live. But when the cell needs to reproduce, then there's a problem because the gonads are gone. Okay, so Bruce has this great realization, and he comes to um, he comes to his professors there, and he tells them, and they are so unenthusiastic. We'd have to change the textbooks. Forget about it. That's nuts. Yeah. Well, so, we are, so it, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's it's that. Oh my gosh, we're not going to take this in because then we have to rewrite history. Yeah. And we're going to keep our blinders on. It's a lot easier. Yeah. So I have to tell you, I, I do believe with all my heart that the age of enlightenment is, is continuing to unfold and the age of awareness is truly ushering in. Mm -hmm. And I do think it's just a matter of time, however relative that is, till we get to that tipping point. Yes. And I think I, if we are to survive, we will get to that tipping point. That, that ends, you know, survival is a big thing. I just want to thank you so much. I, we could go on. I have, I have, you know, I think four pages of questions here still. Um, so, so we might have to talk again sometime. I certainly appreciate the conversation, and you know uh, that that conversation that you're talking about—that's five eighty-minute CDs that Bruce and I are working our way through this material. So you did great for a short, for a short show. Thank you. Thank you. It, it was just a delight to have you here. And I, I encourage anyone and everyone to pick up the book, Spontaneous Evolution. It, it is really um, revolutionizing the way that we think. And it's bringing just that new age of awareness in, into fruition. Thanks so much, Stephanie. Thank you, Steve. <laughs>
Steve's book, Spontaneous Evolution, written by he and Bruce Lipton, is a must for everyone interested in our evolving planet and being a part of the new age of awareness as it comes into being. Steve Behrman is a light post illuminating our way into this greater understanding of how we can understand the past and step into a greater future for us all. I had the extreme pleasure of sharing lunch before the interview with Steve and his lovely wife, Trudy. And I will tell you, these are people who live this reality. I felt so much love, joy, and connection in their presence. And later that night, my girlfriend Shelly and I went to hear Steve perform as his alter ego, the Swami Beyondananda, which is a comedic act he has performed for over 20 years. It was hilarious, enlightening, and brought to awareness that through laughter, we can all find a common ground to meet and truly tap into the truth of our inner connection. The thing that strikes me most deeply is this concept of how our beliefs are formed and how our beliefs create our reality. For so long, those beliefs were actually generated from all these different places, whether it was animism, polytheism, monotheism, or the scientific industrial revolutions. Our beliefs are shaped and our beliefs really do affect how we interact with the world. So how exciting to be a part of this whole new era of holism coming into existence, a new belief system that will usher in a new era of awareness and interconnectedness, a place where we really can find heaven on earth. Remember, The Spark is your show too. If you have questions, feedback on the show, or if you're going through something and need a little help, we'd love to hear from you. Continue the conversation with us at our website, thesparkpod.com, and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. New episodes of The Spark air Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Mountain. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. The show is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional and should not be considered medical advice. If you're having a mental or physical health crisis, please seek treatment immediately. The Spark is produced by NOCO Media Limited, which is solely responsible for its content. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Spark, igniting your best life. I'm Stephanie James. This has been a production of NOCO-FM.